Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. How does mobile phone technology impact the lives of the global poor? Rosa Wang has been examining this question deeply and during our conversation today is going to provide us with some answers. Not only about what mobile technology looks like, She will examine some of the tech frontiers that are providing financial access, connectivity, identity and empowerment, but also the uncomfortable question of what being poor actually means, both the fundamental realities of living on less than $2 a day, but also the positive connections that she's seen as she's been on her journeys. Rosa is the Global Director for Digital Financial Services of the Opportunity International. Rosa has written down the stories she's gathered on her journeys, and she's put them in a book called Strong Connections, Stories of Resilience from the Far Reaches of the Mobile Phone Revolution. Rosa says, I wrote this because one day, hopefully soon, I believe that every person on the planet will have their own mobile phone. And when that day arrives and historians document this remarkable revolution, I want the untold stories of women in this book to be part of the written record. I want there to be an account of innovative village practices, the rich tapestry of their successes and failures, tales of their resilience and of their dogged hard work. So without further ado, Rosa, welcome. Hi, good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. And I wondered whether we could start our conversation today. Could you share with us a little bit about what's motivated you to write this book? What's what's driven you to you know, put pen to paper? Uh, Well, it's quite interesting. So maybe about five or six years before I started writing in earnest, I changed the way that I delivered messages when I would speak at conferences or attend things like symposiums. And instead of having a lot of technical content, what I would do is I started to tell stories. I started to tell stories of the clients or the persons that were trying to help in the field. And I would give their name And then I would fill in a lot about, you know, their lives and how their lives had been changed with the work that we were doing. And what I found was that people would come up to me afterwards and they would often repeat the story or they would talk about, oh, you know, what happened to you in in Tanzania? That happened to me, uh, but I was in this other country Uh, and they would relate their own experiences. And so what I came away from that was an understanding that by telling stories, you really had a way to connect with people and they had a way to remember and to really retain quite a lot of what you were trying to say. And so the whole idea of the book was really to say, you know, I've been working in the field um, more recently as digital financial services for about 17 years, but how could I convey some of the things that we had done and some of the accomplishments that my colleagues and peers had, had accomplished? How could we do that in a way that could reach a larger audience and in a way particularly that would connect with the audience. And that's how the book really started. 
And as you say, storytelling is just, it's such a powerful medium. And I was wondering whether then we can unpick that a bit. So what did you learn in terms of the process of researching the book and writing it? And yeah, what are the key messages for us? Well, once I decided to write the book, then I had to really step back and recognize that a lot of the writing that I had done, you know, for the past three decades was much more technical writing. And what I wanted to do was to write a story which was much more in terms of the narrative nonfiction approach or the more creative process. And so the book very much is based on a personal journey. It's my journey uh, through that that kind of interweaves the storyline. So I do rely very, very heavily in terms of my own notes, in terms of informal pictures that I took throughout, and in terms of uh, things like trip reports for that. And then I added on the research to bring statistics, particularly about the mobile phone industry, about the progress that was made, uh, statistics about demographics, and the background in terms of uh, various geopolitical events that were happening during the time and in the places where the story takes place. And what I found was, as I was researching this, was the surprising exponential trajectory became really obvious as I started looking through the statistics, just how rapid was the rise of the mobile phone that really sort of stood out and how many similarities took place, for example, in uh, like Kenya and in India, in places that are quite different, where they had very different sort of ways in which business and ways in which regulators uh, operated. And yet on the ground, we found a lot of similarities in terms of the ways women would react to the technology, the ways they were incorporated. It was really a lot of these similarities that kind of underpin a number of these stories. Could you give us an example of some of these stories, Rosa? Well, one that really sort of stuck out in my mind, it was kind of the first scene that I wrote. It's now chapter six in the book, and this takes place in Bhopal in India. And when I went to visit there, I was brought to meet a group of women, and this was within the context of microfinance. So this is what's known as a trust group. So it's about 14 women, and basically they are given small-scale loans. And because they lack collateral, they co-guarantee each other's loan, and that gives them the ability to basically have access to credit markets uh, through this. And so I was brought along to one of their weekly meetings. Um, along with the head of this microfinance institution and along with the loan officer. And we were sitting on the dirt floor in one of the houses of, of the women in the group and basically joined in with their meeting, observed what would normally take place, which includes the repayment of the loans for that week. And then I was able to engage them in terms of asking questions and probing much more in terms of what are their aspirations and what is their level of fluency with respect to the mobile phone. What was really struck me was that I was expecting about half of the women to have their own phone because that's sort of, you know, if you look statistically, also in terms of some of the groups that I had worked with in Africa that had very similar sort of economic level, I was expecting half the women to have a phone. And then it was only two out of 14. And that really then hit home in terms of the gender gap. And when I asked the women, you know, do you have a phone? Uh, Only two out of 14. When I asked them the question, do you have a phone in your household? All 14 women uh, raised their hand. So every household, this is a very poor area of Bhopal, 
uh, within this community. But all 14 women lived in a household which had was able to save enough to obtain a mobile phone, but they saw the phone as belonging to their husbands and not as something, not as a tool that they knew how to use or not as a tool that they could then use for other services, whether it's you know financial services, health services, or other things. And I think that was really one of the things that kind of made it quite visceral in terms of the gender gap that occurs and how that was one of the more challenging uh, issues that we continue to face as we're trying to roll out and improve people's lives. Yeah. And, and as you say that, A, the fact that it was that sort of expectation that those phones belong to your husband, but presumably also the trust they needed to build in you to be able to talk about these things and to, to have you into that sort of those circles and, and talk about money as well. I mean, it's often a private affair. And I wondered whether you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit through your experiences, both in researching for this book and, and, and previously as well. There's often a sort of big stake in the ground around, you know, poverty equals people who are living on uh, $2 or less a day. But actually, what does that mean? I mean, that's just such a sort of bland statement. From your experiences, from your travels, from working and spending time with people, could you paint us a picture? What does living on $2 or less a day mean? And can you bring that to, to life for us? So for a lot of these people, you know, to, living at a level like that means that you don't have electricity in your household. And so, you know, my role was to try to see, can we use the mobile phone? And it's an electronic device. And so you're trying to find out ways that people can kind of work around that, go to charging stations, but basically have to take into consideration that they don't have electrification. Often they don't have clean water in their house. So they may have to go to a well on a regular basis in terms of getting clean water. But I think for a lot of uh, cases, what you really sort of see in comparison to those of us that are much more fortunate and living in very different circumstances is what people call a lack of agency. And so is the person able to make a lot of decisions? Do they have autonomy in terms of, you know, if they have, if they come into some monetary resources, what to do with that? And that's where it really starts to impress upon you that this is quite a multi-layered and sort of nuanced issue. Of course, we're doing most of the work in microfinance. And so one of the things there is to say, okay, let's improve you know, the monetary situation of this family or of this household. And that definitely does result in significant improvement, but is only one of the improvements. And so some of the training that goes alongside is really about helping the woman gain confidence. It's about helping them feel that they have more of a say in terms of family decisions, more input into their community. And we often find quite encouragingly that a lot of women who do well emerge as leaders within the groups, within their community, within the village. Uh, and therefore they do have, they become quite empowered through this greater confidence and through this greater sense of agency in that. But I also wanted to say that within these communities, I saw two things that these women, despite their very low income levels, that permeated throughout all of these villages. And one was a great sense of resilience. And the resilience meant that, you know, bad things could happen, such as a drought, uh, such as some kind of weather calamity. 
And they had a remarkable ability to, to bounce back or to kind of roll with the problems. Uh, we saw this also with the, with the early rounds of the COVID pandemic, where the entire world was upended and all kinds of circumstances locked down. But in many of these areas, my colleagues tell me that a lot of, you know, you saw a lot more resilience with people who were used to uh, sort of adjusting to difficult circumstances. Uh, and so I think it, it does prepare them uh, in terms of being able to deal with uncertainty and being able to deal with, with kind of negative consequences. Uh, the other thing that I saw that, that these women had was what I call a really strong sense of social capital or really strong social networks. So as I mentioned, microfinance is built on the trust that the women have in each other and the ability to kind of co-guarantee each other. But we also saw this in terms of the reliance on the women. Uh, we also saw that you know if one woman in a group did learn how to use the phone, she was usually the best source in terms of demonstrating that to the other women. And she would often take a role in that informally, uh, that people would go to her and they'd say, oh, please show me this or help me with this. And that was a very, very effective sort of peer learning. And so the social bonds and the social connections that the women shared, that was very much a source of strength and also, I would say, a source of, of wealth and one that we continue to look to tap into. You know, can we develop social networks in such a way or leverage social networks in such a way that can be reflected in terms of, so in the case of microfinance, can that change a person's credit profile if they have a very strong social network? But also in other ways, can it improve the education of an area? Uh, if you wanted to, say, deliver health services or things like that, can you rely on a social network? And we found that these were extremely strong, and that was uh, quite a good way that messages can be delivered as well. And amazing that those factors you were seeing again and again in, in lots of very quite different regions and locations as well. Rosa, I wanted to sort of pick up on the fact that when you were just talking about that kind of resilience, it's very interesting. Anybody who's listened to any of the other podcasts, and feel free to go and have a listen if you haven't. There's a reoccurring theme I'm hearing from whether it's somebody who is a smallholder farmer in region that's already being affected by the climate change or otherwise, that sense that actually we're already rolling with it. We're already adapting. We're already trying out new things. And, you know, actually being on the ground and already being affected by climate change means that you're almost a pioneer, that the rest of us around the world need to be looking to you for solutions and to figure out how to become more resilient because you guys are already doing it. And, and I, I hear that from you in how you just shared that too, Rosa. It, would that be right? Does that feel right? I, I think that's absolutely right. And that has underpinned a lot of um, the learning that I did, which started you know, when I first was working with a group called Ashoka that works with social entrepreneurs. But this idea that on a grassroots level, that many great ideas come bottom up rather than top down. And because many of these people in the villages, uh, they have such resilience, but they've had to deal with so many different kinds of challenges and difficulties and compounded. And you're raising the issue of climate change. And of course, that is affecting a lot of areas that we work in, particularly in, in some of the areas in Africa. And you do see a lot of adaptation. Uh, you see a lot of cleverness in terms of how they look to do things in terms of crop rotation, in terms of conservation of water and various things. But it's also underpins this notion that 
if you have an idea from, you know, say the first world from the US or Europe or something like that, and many people think, oh, we're just going to bring this into, say, a village in Uganda and, and it will work immediately because look at what wonders it's done. And that rarely uh, is the case. And so the ability to translate uh, the use case so that it's relevant for the person on the ground, but more importantly, you know, the ability to look and see, oh, well, what is it that, that you're doing? And one of the things that I found really effective was when I, because I worked across uh, multiple countries and multiple geographies. But so, for example, when I would go to Malawi, I wouldn't say, oh, you know, in the UK, they, they try this. Do you think that might work here? But I would say, well, for example, in Uganda, when we ran into this same challenge of people forgetting, say, their PIN number, this is what they tried to do. And I found that that tended to have much more commonality and much more ability uh, in terms of things to share. And so I think the idea, again, very, very similar to peer learning, but the idea that you have, you observe sort of grassroots solutions to things and you say, is there a way that this grassroots solution can be proliferated and kind of spread and scaled into a much broader sense? And that's where I think there's a lot of room for innovation. And that's where I think there's also a lot of room for uh, additional collaborations. Well, the power in sharing experiences is so important, isn't it? It's just, you know, what you can learn from others. And, and Rosa, therefore, I wanted to understand from you, where, what's your hope for this research? What do you hope will come out of it? The technologies, ideas that you saw, the people that you met, where do you see them kind of moving forward or what do we need to learn from them? Well, when I began the journey for the book, it was, the intention was really to start a conversation and to start a conversation among groups and sectors that might not normally kind of either speak to each other or speak the same language or really, you know, understand each other. And so I described this to someone as it's one of the interesting things I think about the digital arena is that things move quite quickly, but also you find that people are looking for, say, someone else who's built the infrastructure or someone else who's doing another kind of project. And you're looking all the time to work across different sectors and, and different normal boundaries than you would have. And if you compare that to the way that things are done in, especially historically in many other contexts where they tend to be quite vertical and say a corporation that might've been successful had to build everything, own everything, control the people, control the staff, uh, you know, set the boundaries, set the rules. This is very much a one which encourages the development of a dynamic ecosystem where people can collaborate. And as part of that, you know, a lot of the work that we were doing was to find ways in which businesses could work with the people on the ground, uh, maybe work with, say, the NGO community that was already there, but also work in collaboration with other entities such as government. And then what I found with, with the process of writing the book was also a great benefit of involving the creatives and people who are taking much more of a creative attempt. So, you know, musicians, artists, writers, and bringing them also into the conversation. And so that's a lot of the hope that I have is, is that people will start to delve more in terms of the stories and what's the impact on a person's life and to understand that that can be done as part of this vibrant dynamic ecosystem. 
rather than thinking, oh, I need to do it all myself, but that what I need to do is maybe convince other people to sort of, that we can work together and do a lot more together. For anybody who hasn't yet got their hands on a copy of the book, I will put the link into the chat function that sits alongside the podcast and have a look in there and I'll put the link in there. And um, Rosa, you mentioned there about businesses and providing, sharing ways that they could get involved. And if anybody who's listening to this podcast was sitting as a decision maker or a part of a business, what would be your advice to them? What would you recommend they do in order to help create the kind of better understanding and, and unlock potential, I guess? I think there's two things, two messages that, that I would uh, give to business that sort of came about when I looked back at all of the work that had been done in the context of the book. And one is about the being open to ideas from the grassroots area, you know, so being open to ideas, again, from your customer base, being open to ideas from a person that might not have electricity in their home or might not be fully literate. And I think that is a very different way in terms of idea generation and innovation that's there. And the other, I would say, is is to look at one of the things that came about in my work over time was the recognition of things like the gender gap, which is one of the most difficult parts of of the digital revolution and the rollout. We still have about 200 million women that are on the wrong side of the digital divide relative to men. So even though, you know, the infrastructure has been built out and even though business has, has done a really good job in terms of spreading mobile technologies throughout the world. And so now, you know, it's about 97% of the world. Most people can walk to a, a reasonable mobile signal. But at the same time, you, in contrast to that, you still have the challenges of things like the gender gap. And so I would say to business that it is important to look at things like that. And so, you know, one of the things that we did was to have gender disaggregated data. Uh, so to look, are these programs working for men as well as women? And what's the uptake? And are there certain things that we could do to adapt it uh, relatively easily? And so I would say for businesses that might be a little bit concerned or to feel that's not for them, we'll leave that to maybe some NGO partners or something. I think it is very much everyone's sort of thing to be able to work on. And this last sort of very difficult phase, which uh, uh, is the relatively small percentage, uh, but still challenging bit of, of making sure that the gender gap is closed in terms of the mobile revolution. I think that business and uh, everyone else, they have a role to play together in. Thank you. And important, important pieces to, uh, to remember it through our decision-making going forward. And Rose, I was wondering what's next for you? I mean, going on such kind of mission to go and collect these stories and listen and understand and then to sit down and write them. You know, it feels as though it must be sort of cathartic getting to the end. What, how, do you, how do you re-energize what's next for you? Yeah, I think everyone underestimates how quickly they can do a book and, and you go, you start the project and you're like, oh, I'll finish this just in a few months. And then you realize it ended up taking me a little over three years to, to sort of complete. So it, so part of it, I think now is um, kind of taking stock and saying how to leverage some of the things that have resulted from the book and really take those further. I've been invited in terms of some additional writing projects in adjacent areas such as climate change. That's something I'm very interested in because this is 
I think, an area that we're going to need to hear more about. But I think that the conveyance of it and the communication um, about the, particularly the risks to people and how does it impact their lives, I think that has could be improved and could be proliferated in a way that has where people can connect to it more. So I do plan to have some projects there. But uh, overall, there's, I think, a lot within the book that I still want to work on. It's also helped to put me in touch with a number of people that I had sort of lost touch with. And so kind of reigniting some of those threads, that's all taking place. And therefore, I wondered whether you wouldn't mind closing out our conversation today, Rosa, by telling us a final story. What would be perhaps pick one of your favorites from the book to close out this conversation today? Yeah, so one of my favorite stories was when we were in Accra uh, in Ghana, and we were there as part of a project uh, which we call, it's Interactive Voice Response, or the industry will call it IVR. Uh, So basically, it's a chatbot. But it's a chatbot that you can record messages and tailor them in local language. And the interesting thing we found in Ghana was that the people who received the messages, they identified very, very strongly. So we called the character Ajoa. Uh, It was recorded by a, a professional voice actress and very much in the lingo of how someone would speak. And, and it was recorded in three languages for three different dialects for Ghana. And we found that the, the recipients of the messages really, really loved it. Like they would say things like, oh, this makes me feel that the, the bank, the institution that was sending it, that they, they care about me. Or these messages, Ajoa really cares about me. Or, you know, we had a campaign to increase savings. And so Ajoa would encourage people, you know, have you uh, saved money today? Remember to save every week. Or if they had been successful in making their weekly deposit, you know, congratulations, you're getting very close to your savings target. And people would would say like, oh, Ajoa cares about me, or we need to go to the bank uh, before it closes because we don't want to disappoint Ajoa. And so I think this was an absolutely fascinating look at how you can take a traditional society where a lot is done orally and basically mirror that with the digital component of these interactive voice response messages uh, and tailor it in such a way that people can really enjoy it. And it increases their confidence and their trust in the institution, but it also guides a person in terms of what they might want to do. So there are all kinds of sort of behavioral nudges and things that can be worked in. And for me, this is the place where I think the work is, is going and is really starting to take off. And it's what we called uh, in the program that I was running the high-tech, high-touch approach. And so that was really that, you know, you you have state-of-the-art technologies that are available, perhaps even more than most people think, but you also hit uh, boundaries where you need to have that human component. And so if you are able to find a combination of the two together, then I think you can really, really have things that have a great deal of traction and a great deal of scalability. Um, and so it is this high, t- I'd gotten it backwards. It's actually high touch, high tech, because you do want to put the person first. But I think that to me and what we saw in Accra uh, is very much where we're going to see a lot of the work going forward. Such an interesting story. And thank you so much for sharing it with us today, Rosa. So that brings us to the end of uh, this story and uh, conversation today. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, I will put the links 
that were mentioned during the conversation and of course to Rosa's book Into the Words that sit alongside it. So Rosa, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 